questions? Cool. So it's always a joy and pleasure to be here. I uh, sometimes tell people that I was born in San Francisco, and so it's like deep homecoming to drive across the bridge. I live in the North Bay, and I was estranged from the Bay Area for many years. I lived in Colorado, and I came back here seven years ago, and so to come back to the city, I actually lived in the East Bay. I never lived in the city, but I was born here. And Eugene has been a root teacher of mine since 2001, so I just, wherever I can help out and learn from him and teach here is just a real honor. So I was here last week and um, this week, so. And I wanted to continue a talk I gave last week on compassion um, because there, whew, seems to be so much that the heart is, there's so much required of our hearts right now, right? Who does not feel their heart stretched or compressed or cracked open or tense or effusive or whatever the condition of your heart is? There's plenty, I'm sure, in your personal life and there's plenty going on in the environment and in the political world and um, I gave a talk last week because there was so much grief from the shootings in Las Vegas, the shooting, you know, and then, you know, we drove home last Sunday night to wake up Monday morning to the fires going on in just right uh, north of us. Um, I woke up to a phone call from my mother at 6 o'clock in the morning who had to evacuate from Santa Rosa. She lives in Santa Rosa. So luckily, I have a home where I could host her, and she had a safe place to go. It took her some hours to get out, but she got out safely, and supposedly her home is okay. Thank goodness. Um, and so we're going to try to get her back up on Tuesday to her neighborhood to see if she can get in her place. She's not in a burned-out area, thank goodness, but the quality of smoke was so bad up there that she just you know, didn't want to go back. Um, so this whole week, right, has probably been a lot for each of us in our own ways, however we've been impacted by what's going on, whether that's someone that you know directly who's lost a home or someone you've you know, been helping out or stories you've read. And it seems that what I keep running into is the way that people have been showing up so incredibly to support people, the evacuees, and give donations and support people and open their homes. And that seems to be the case a lot when we have crisis in our country. If we think way back to 9-11 and all of the recent natural disasters that we've had in the southern part of the country, it seems that we have a capacity to really rise up and help each other. And I had three different times that I was going to take donations to a place in Marin that said they were accepting donations, and within hours they were posting notices saying, we're overflowing with donations, please don't bring any more donations. This happened three different times where I was like bags at the door going, okay, I won't go take this stuff down there, because they said the generosity has been plenty and they're doing okay. Um, and then there have been, uh, you know, stories that I've read that were a little bit more tender and difficult, but also 
clear signs of compassion. If anybody saw the video of the UPS driver or the US, the Postal Service driver, did anyone see that video? It's amazing. So in a part of Santa Rosa that was totally burned down neighborhood, a postal worker decided to continue to deliver mail to the mailboxes that were still standing in this neighborhood. It was the only car on the road and it was completely desolate. But these people had requested that their mail continue to be delivered so that if they came back to get whatever belongings they had, they could also get their mail. And so here was this driver in this like totally desolate area stopping, you know, where there were no homes, just a few mailboxes because of what that person, you know, because of their heart, didn't have to do that. Um, a more difficult story was about a couple from Southern California who were vacationing with their, with their kids. You might have read about this, a man who was 76 and his wife who was 75. They've been married 55 years and they were leaving and a tree came down on the road so they had to go back. They couldn't keep going with their kids. They got separated from their children. They went back to the home they were renting and decided to get into the pool because the fire was burning the house, which was really smart. And the man was holding his wife for hours and she eventually died because you know, I'm not trying to tell these horrible stories, but the care and the heartfulness and the love that's also happening in the midst of all this devastation and difficulty is also what's here, which is really amazing. Um, I was talking to a teacher of mine that lives in Santa Rosa and was evacuated and went back to his house yesterday. And he said today he went out to his acupuncture center where his acupuncturist is giving all free treatments to anyone who walks in the door. They had set up extra services for other body workers. He said everyone's being so kind and patient and helpful. He said it's really something, you know. He said it's really something to be in this eerie, really tragic, you know, devastating loss sort of atmosphere. He said but at the same time, people at Trader Joe's were so, you know, sort of impeccably attuned to what everyone needed. Um, so it seems to be our natural inclination. It seems to be our innate response that when they're suffering, there we, here we come. What can I do? What can, how can I give? We, you know, we just see it over and over in these situations. The Latin word for compassion means co-suffering, with, to suffer with. And the English noun compassion means to love together, love together with. And I love that combination of to suffer with, but also to love together with. If you've ever heard me talk before, I love to read quotes. <laughs> Sometimes I bring four million quotes and then I lose them and shut them out forever. I got it. This is from the Buddha. Like a caring mother holding and guarding the life of her only child, 
So with a boundless heart of loving kindness, hold yourself in all beings as your beloved children. Instructions from the Buddha. (laughs) So I also was sort of asking myself, well, if this is what happens when things are difficult, um, why aren't we living like this all the time? Right? Suffering's at our doorstep all the time. There's, and, and maybe some of us, we do. This is actually, you know, this is actually what we're devoted to. Um, but it seems like when things calm down, we kind of all go back to our regular individual lives. And that's not a criticism, it's just an observation, you know, we get caught up in what we need to do. Um, and I think we also get caught back into not just the external, but the internal world that we live in. More of our ordinary reality of the mind and heart. Um, More of our day-to-day view of reality. And that one can be more leaning in the realm of ignorance, rather than kind of open-heartedness, where we might not be as in touch with our interdependence we might be slipping back into or kind of in the state of what in Buddhism we call wrong view (coughs) instead of right view, which is the first aspect of the Eightfold Noble Path, if you're familiar with that. But it's also called right understanding and right meaning true or real. And, And right understanding or right view is understanding or seeing clearly that things are impermanent, our things are fleeting, our everything's changing, and that ultimately we're actually not separate, that we're all interconnected. That we sort of see through the false sort of lens that there's, you know, you and me, even though there is, but ultimately, ultimately, there isn't really this solid sense of self, and nothing is really solid, and everything's changing and everything's impermanent. And with that, we see the root of suffering. We understand more what causes suffering. Suffering is caused when we want things to be permanent. We want things to stay the same. We want them to be as they were yesterday or last year. And yet, they're not, and they don't. And so we either push things away, or we hold on tight, and that creates a contraction in the mind and in the heart. And there's tension there, and that's what creates stress or suffering. So we also know this as samsara in Sanskrit. And so the Buddha saw that suffering is not necessarily a fundamental condition of existence. It's not necessarily pain may be fundamental, but suffering itself is not necessarily a fundamental condition of an existence but a mental universe based on our mistaken identity. It's like inside how we're seeing things, a mistaken view that leads to it. So wrong view is also not seeing, forgetting this innate capacity we have for kindness and compassion. It's, It's having a little amnesia around that or that we don't have the possibility to awaken. And when we're in our darkest moments, right, we completely forget that our own goodness, 
we're removed from that which you know has sparked or spirited or inspired us in our compassion and kindness before and it doesn't seem accessible or available am I the only one who's ever felt that way <laughs> where it's like where was the, where's that good person where did she go when we have some real strong aversion or anger or depression that comes and it kind of sweeps the house and we go, whoa, right? I pulled out a book um, that I really enjoy by Matthew. I don't speak French, so Matthew, <laughs> Matthew Ricard. <laughs> called Happiness. Um, he's a French monk, been a monk for 40-some years, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about him, but um, I appreciate his view. And He says, every being has the potential for perfection, just as every sesame seed is permeated with oil. Ignorance in this context means being unaware of that potential. <coughs> like the beggar who is unaware of the treasure buried beneath his or her shack, or their shack. Just ignorant, not aware of the potential. So our path keeps pointing us back to that potential. Right? It's not that we, we, we say we cultivate kindness, we cultivate compassion, and some view is that we actually uncover it, we allow it, we awaken it, that which is already there, that which is our inherent goodness. So he says, actualizing our true nature, coming into possession of that hidden wealth, allows us to live a life full of meaning. It is the surest way to find serenity and let genuine altruism flourish that which is kind of pure and genuine to us. So the Buddha figured this out 2,600 years ago. (laughs) Sort of had his own awakening and went, yeah, okay, right? Had big insight into what, what was the truth, the reality of who he was and what he wasn't and what caused the suffering. Um, and it's been interesting for me and kind of fun to track how science has been catching up to the Buddha or you know science is doing its own version of verification and particularly in the last 10 years if you're following any of the brain science studies and the neuroscience research um, uh, that they started to do particularly Richie Davidson who's in Madison Wisconsin leads up a number of different programs and about 10 years ago, he and a man named Antoine Lutz started these studies where they started putting monks who'd been you know, practicing meditation for 10,000 hours and some of them 50,000 meditation sessions. They started putting them in fMRI, they do fMRI scans where they put them in the machines and look at their brain right, to see what the impact was of all that practice. And they did a control study with 16 lay people and they taught them some sort of, um, they call it reappraisal training, and then they took the 16 monks and they put them through. 
And, you know, the story goes, after one of the first rounds, they had to get a new machine because some of the monks, I mean, it was, they, they couldn't even monitor them. It was so far off the charts in terms of what their brain sh showed, particularly areas of the brain that are connected to emotion, the insula, that taps into emotion and heart rate and body sensation that's, that's connected to our emotional center and the prefrontal cortex areas of the left and right hemispheres of the brain that either show negativity bias or happiness. And so Matthew Ricard was one of these monks and they found him to be what they coined, they, call, they started calling him the happiest man in the world mm -hmm. because his, his you know, average was like so beyond from doing thousands of hours of compassion practice. And, um, and so they, and, um, they started to think about this and go, oh, so, you know, does that mean everybody has to drop their life and go live in the Himalayas for 20 years? Like, most people aren't going to do that. So they started to get curious, and there's been all these studies now of, of brain training where really in, you know, two or three weeks, people who do 20 to 30 minutes of compassion practice a day start to have changes in their brain. They're doing, they're putting them in scans, they're doing control group studies, and it's really fascinating. They did this one study where um, this graduate student in psychology decided to look and see that after like two or three weeks of compassion practice, were people more altruistic? So they had, they set up this game where they were given the opportunity to help somebody out. So on the internet there were two different people that they were interacting with. One was um, the dictator and one was the victim. And the dictator had like uh, $10 and they could only give the victim, they only give the victim $1. And the person who was involved could then give the victim additional money. They had, I think they had $5. And they were allowed to give additional money to the victim who was you know, um, not getting enough money from the dictator. And all the people that had done the compassion practice were like giving these dollars away to the victim. And they're going, wow, just after a few weeks of training people, more altruism was coming than the people in the control group. So it's been interesting just to see how, right, neuroscience is kind of proving some of the things that maybe you've already figured out for yourself through this practice, you've already started to notice in yourself or in others when the heart wakes up and the mind wakes up and we set an intention in a certain direction and we don't just let our minds wander in the habitual direction but we keep steering our heart and mind back to that which we know is true, what cultivates goodness, what we care most about, what we value. So it's this training. Um, the woman who ran that study said it's kind of like weight training. She said, we found that people can actually build up their compassion muscle and respond to others' suffering with care and a desire to help. Um, Matthew Ricard says, you cannot in the same moment of thought wish to do something good to someone or to harm that person so you cannot in the same moment of thought wish to do something good to someone 
or to harm that person. Those are mutually incompatible, like hot and cold water. So the more you will bring benevolence in your mind at every of those moments, then there's no space for the hatred. It's just very simple. But we don't do that. We do exercise every morning 20 minutes to be fit, but we don't sit for 20 minutes to cultivate compassion, he says. If we were to do so, our mind would change, our brain would change, what we are would change. It's just a little pep talk. <laughs> Keep it going. <laughs> when times are difficult, which they really are, huh? Jack Cornfield, who founded uh, Spirit Rock Meditation Center, which is in Marin, says that human suffering and hardship cannot be alleviated just by a simple change of government or a new monetary policy, although these things may help. On the deepest level, problems such as war and starvation are not solved by economics and politics alone. Their source is prejudice and fear in the human heart, and their solution also lies in the human heart. What the world needs most is people who are less bound by prejudice. Wouldn't that be good? It needs more love, more generosity, more mercy, more openness. The root of human problems is not a lack of resources, but comes from the misunderstanding, fear, and separateness that can be found in the hearts of people. So I think resources help, and uh, economics and political decisions help. But what helps most, right, is, is an awakened heart that then can use those resources in the appropriate direction. I ran across an interesting man you may have heard of some years ago named Piero Ferrucci. And he is an Italian psychotherapist who wrote a book called Survival of the Kindest. That was quite interesting. And he really believes that one of the reasons that we've been successful in evolution is because of kindness. That we couldn't have gotten where we've gotten if it wasn't for kindness. Um, and that it's actually the most economical attitude to have because it doesn't waste energy on mistrust and worry and manipulation. It's actually quite efficient and economical. Um, but he says, we live in an ice age of the heart. A lot of people no longer feel connected. The human warmth we so badly need is marketed like a product. Traditionally made ice cream, old-fashioned baked bread, pasta from grandmother's era, that type of thing. But this, of course, isn't real. Nothing heals like meeting a fellow human being. Try experimenting. Make eye contact. Start chatting about the weather. It doesn't matter if it's about nothing in particular. You'll notice that something shifts. The energy starts to flow. A block disappears. Believe me, it's vitally important. He goes on to say, at this time in history, kindness is not a luxury, but a necessity. It is up to each of us to make a choice. We will, go down, will we go down the road of egotism and hurtful behavior, or will we choose fellowship 
and friendliness. So we know this about our practice, that we, when we sit together, when we sit on our own, when we sit together, that's really what our practice is, right? Is to keep facing those places in ourself that do go towards egotism, that are hurtful, the hindrances, you know, the hindrances of greed, the hindrances of aversion, the way the mind wants to cling, the way we want I, me, and mine, the way we get scared or we protect ourselves. You know, there's so much of what we're doing is trying to protect ourselves, protect ourselves to be safe, right? Our survival drive, our deep survival animal mechanism. And so when we sit, right, it's this courageous act to sit with all that that's wired inside us, that's happening despite our intention, and to start to tenderize our hearts, and to start to sit with our pain, and to start to sit with the discord and the tension and the stress, and allow like sands on a mountain slowly eroding away over time. Some of those stories, some of those thoughts, some of those habits. So there's less of a mountain of ego, less of kind of a, a solid way that, that maybe we've become. Um, I like this part. This is also from Piero Ferrucci. Says that um, we may think that he is a psychotherapist, so he works a lot with mental illness. And he says we may think that mental illnesses are born out of pain and traumas, but the real sickness is that we deny the most beautiful part of ourselves. We deny our creativity, our joy, our kindness. That's why we suffer. We suppress it. But more to the point, um, we suppress our own violence, which he says is part of the, the issue. But more to the point, we suppress love and inner beauty because that's much scarier. That it's scarier to open to the amount of beauty and love that might be inside us. So why are we afraid of our own beauty and our own light? What's scary about that? Often it's because it melts the boundaries between us. You know, we feel less protected. We feel more vulnerable. Maybe we touch other things if we're that open. Touch the helplessness that we feel. Touch the interconnectedness. So it's probably not wise to just let it all down or whatever, but what what can we let down? What what can we open to a little bit more to feel less of that sense of isolation and more our own beauty and our own light? Um, you may have heard this it's been, it's been read so many times over the years, which is so sweet. Nelson Mandela um, read it at his inaugural speech. Did anybody get to see him when he came to speak in Oakland? When was that? 1993, 4, 5? At the Coliseum. It was packed. 
I had my binoculars. It was like, wow. Hmm? Anyway, it was a long time ago, but I got to stand in the crowds and just sob at the sight of this man who'd been let out of prison all those years. You know, he was such a powerful person in the world at that time. So he says, our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, and fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? uh, You are a child of God. Your playing small doesn't serve the world. There's nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We were born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. You can insert another word for God if that doesn't work for you, the glory of Buddha. It's not just in some of us, it's in everyone. And as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. So sometimes our practice isn't just about opening to the pain and the suffering and all that. It's about opening to the light and the beauty and the goodness in us. And how uncomfortable is that? Or how, where's the edge of that? Or how are we doing in our practice with that? Letting, right? Letting our heart be as wide as the world, as Joanna Macy says. This is also from the Buddha in a section, Sharon Salzberg's book. Uh, This section is called Breaking Open the Loving Heart. The Buddha said, the thought manifests as the word. The word manifests as the deed. The deed develops into habit. And habit hardens into character. So watch the thought in its way with care and let it spring from love, born out of concern for all beings. some of these crises, these devastating events uh, are ways for us to remember our interconnectedness and our love 
I'm not wishing for more. <laughs> um, it's a lot. And so we can uh, perhaps, if we want, take it on to remember without having to have such a wake-up call. Pema Chodron says, just as a jewel that has been buried in the earth for a million years is not discolored or harmed, in the same way this noble heart is not affected by all our kicking and screaming. Mm -hmm. Does anyone else enjoy that description? Mm -hmm. I would say, what are we coming into a year since the election now? How much kicking and screaming have you done to have holes in your walls? Mm-hmm. Right? How much? Oh, how many breaths have we had to take? How much? Right? How much has this practice hurt <laughs> us? How much tolerance have we had to cultivate? Chose to cultivate. Just as a jewel that has been buried in the earth for a million years is not discolored or harmed. In the same way, this noble heart is not affected by all of our kicking and screaming. The jewel can be brought out into the light at any time, and it will glow as brilliantly as if nothing had ever happened. It's pretty amazing, right? We think it, we think it's tainted. We think it can be ruined. We think our heart can be broken and never put back together. But in bodhicitta, like in the truth, right, of of the purity of our heart, it can shine, it will glow as brilliantly as if nothing ever happened. No matter how committed we are to unkindness, selfishness, or greed, the genuine heart of bodhicitta cannot be lost. It is here in all that lives, never marred and completely whole. It can take a beating, though. <laughs> Just turn on the news. So, how do we, how do we get there? How do we, keep, how do we keep that heart, you know, shining brilliantly? How do we remember? How, what's, how do we keep, how do we keep going forward? Because it seems like right now it's just right every every day, every week, there's some kind of big event. Um, I uh, I was thinking back this week. Um, I really didn't think I was going to get emotional because uh, I didn't felt that, but uh, I feel a little bit emotional. I was thinking back to some of the first times I felt compassion as a child and maybe touched into that bodhicitta and um, ironically, um, it's it's ironic this week, but uh, ironically um, we lost our home in a fire when I was seven up in Sebastopol, I lived up in Sonoma and uh, one of the redwood trees caught fire and luckily, no one was home, but our house burned to the ground the week before Christmas, and we lost everything. 
and I think I was in the third grade. And so I was thinking about people this week, right, and, and what that was like to uh, look and see what once was your home was not there. And um, one of the memories, there's several memories of that time, but one of the strongest memories is because it was Christmas time and we had had our presents gone and all that. The Red Cross, we are staying with friends. And one day out of nowhere, I don't know who called them. I, I was a kid. I, you know, I don't know what happened. The Red Cross showed up at our door with this box of toys and Barbies. <laughs> and like my sister and I were just in seventh heaven. It, it was like Barbies. Because we were hippie kids, and mom didn't buy us Barbies. <laughs> we didn't get no Barbies. And so we opened up that box, and we're like, yeah, man, we got the Barbies. And we were like, wow, this is so cool. Of course, they were from the Red Cross, so they had all their hair cut off, and, you know, someone had marked on them, and they didn't have any clothes. And, but, like, we didn't care. We were kids. We were like... And the joy, I mean, I can feel it right now, right? That was 40 years ago. The joy that somebody who didn't know us, some stranger out of nowhere, drove out of their way down this country road to give us this box. You know, like, it was like Santa had come. And we were Jewish, so. (laughs) But it's like, um, it's like those, you know, those those moments that arise um, gives me such faith. You know, it's such trust and such faith in, in the goodness of who we are. These people probably weren't Buddhists, maybe they were, I don't know. Um, so I think we just, you know, we just, um, we just keep going, right? We just remember those moments and we keep going. You know, remember the postal workers driving down and delivering mail and people who keep showing up like they show up and we just do it bit by bit and breath by breath we keep going and sometimes it's a small crumb we have to hold on to in the midst of all this um, the the intense oppression that we're in right now we can feel like oppression Um, and maybe we take on a little extra forgiveness practice you know for ourselves first for ourselves for the thoughts that are coming up inside us and the difficulties. Or metta, loving kindness practice, you know. Somebody spoke last week about taking on that practice and what a difference it made to do metta for themselves. Um, And we open to our pain, right, the best that we can. And let ourselves be tenderized. And there's so often the feeling of what do I do with these feelings? I don't want to feel the pain. I don't want to feel the hurt. I don't want to know about all these people that are in loss. And so we don't have to take it all on, right? Because then we usually feel responsible and we feel guilty. Well, I didn't lose anything and I'm okay and then we don't want to go there. Because what do we do with those feelings? And and then we feel the helplessness of like, I can't help and I don't, you know, what does that mean? And, but maybe if we can just touch it a little bit more, right? Just just the edges of it. Just start to like let our heart just touch right over there and come back and touch and come back and touch and come back. And right, our heart gets bigger and wider and we have more capacity and it's less scary to sit with 
all the feelings that come up, even if we don't have to do anything about them. That's the hardest part. That's what's so great about meditation. We sit and we don't get up and go to the fridge to eat through our feelings. And we don't go get on something, you know, Facebook or whatever the app is or the thing. You know, we actually just sit there and let ourselves kind of relax and rest the best that we can with that discomfort, right? With the edge of that and start to learn that we can tolerate it. We can tolerate a little bit more, a little bit more, and that we don't have to do anything about it. And if we choose to do something about it, great, we get to do something about it. We like was being said, we get to get into social action, get to take take right action. But we often don't want to feel it because we don't know what to do. So we just don't want to feel it at all. And then we're kind of living in this, right, halfway place. We're not quite mindful, like halfway mindful. We're not quite all the way here, not all the way present. And we can't really look people totally in the eye, right? Because some part of us is like, uh oh, then I'm going to have to really kind of, you know, sense what's really going on. And then if it's too much, you know, we take breaks from the pain. We do something fun, go dancing, or walk in nature. Or, you know, it all needs to be part of the support. Um, and I often like to take the long view, you know, like the 30-year view. <laughs> like when I think back 40 years ago and what happened and where I am now, and, um, I love this interview I heard with the Dalai Lama years ago where somebody said, uh, an interviewer said, probably from the West, you know, they said, so how often do you check in with your meditation practice, like how it's going and how you're doing and the progress you've made and stuff? And he says, well, that's a good question. He said, because he gets up and he sits, I think he practices, what, three hours every morning, maybe four. He gets up at like 3 a.m., practices for hours, and then does his day where he sees people or travels or whatever. And he said, you know, I like to check in about every 10 years. <laughs> and just see if anything needs adjusting. And then, you know, at that point I'll assess, right? Every ten years. That's a that's a good time to see how your practice is going. I think we're checking in every two minutes. How am I doing? How am I doing? Am I doing right? My breath and you know, my lightning, my home. It's like what if we took a longer view, you know? We gave ourselves more room. Because we can't force a flower to open, you know. You can't force the heart to open. You can't force. You can't force yourself to be more compassionate or forgiving or kind. There's just it just doesn't work that way, right? And we set intentions, like you did tonight. We set intentions over and over, and just keep coming back. What's our intention? What is it that like matters most to you? What do you care most about? At the end of the day, at the end of your life, when you look back, like, what is it that you want to say, how you lived? What is it that you're going to take with you when you cross over? Yeah. And that can be your rudder, that can be your anchor when, when other people are having maybe much different intentions. What's yours? Yeah. What's your North Star? Yeah. And I love the 12 step saying, you know, progress, not perfection. We just see. So we can notice when our heart closes and around difficult news, you know? And we can be compassionate towards ourselves. May I be free of suffering. May they be free of suffering. 
We can imagine people being whole and well. We can imagine people not being harmed and having the resources they need. And that actually cultivates goodness in the heart. The wish and the imagining. Of, that's what um, ten, you know, 50,000 hours, Matthew Ricard, his fMRI going off the chart because he says he spends hours and hours a day imagining people well, imagining they have what they need, imagining they're strong and healthy. And that like knits his heart right in a particular direction. I care about this pain inside me. I care about their pain. And we can also notice, right, just when the heart is open. Right? We don't have to do anything. It just naturally opens. There it is. A moment of joy and goodness and compassion. And we can take it in. So we need to notice that just as much as we notice the closure, right? And to start to allow those moments to linger. As Rick Hansen, who's a local meditation teacher and neuroscientist says we savor the good. He said because there's such negativity bias we focus on the negative so strongly that when goodness comes in, he said we have to savor it for like 20 seconds, 30 seconds to anchor it in the neural pathways of the brain to counter how quickly the brain goes to what's negative. So the importance of taking in positive experiences. So, I'll just read one more day, and I'll open it up if there's any comments or questions. This is from Clarissa Pincola Estes. <coughs> Ours is not, uh, this is called, You Were Made for This. Ours is not the task of fixing the entire world all at once, but of stretching out to mend the part of the world that is within our reach. Any small, calm thing that one soul can do to help another soul, to assist some portion of this poor, suffering world, will help immensely. It is not given to us to know, it is not given to us to know which acts or by whom will cause the critical mass to tip toward an enduring good. What is needed for dramatic change is an accumulation of acts, adding to, adding to, adding more, continuing, we know that it does not take everyone on earth to bring justice and peace, but only a small, determined group who will not give up during the first, second, or hundredth gale. One of our most calming and powerful actions, one of the most calming and powerful actions you can do to intervene in a stormy <coughs> world is to stand up and show your soul. Soul on deck shines like gold in dark times. The light of the soul throws sparks can send up flares, build signal fires, causes proper matters to catch fire. Probably not a good pun or metaphor right now. To display the lantern of soul in shadowy times like these, to be fierce and to show mercy towards others, both are acts of immense bravery and greatest necessity. Struggling souls catch light from other souls who are fully lit and willing to show it. If you would help to calm the tumult, this is one of the strongest things you can do. There will always be times when you feel discouraged. I too have felt despair many times in my life, but I do not keep a chair for it. I will not entertain it. 
It is not allowed to eat from my plate. In that spirit, I hope you will write this on your wall. When a great ship is in harbor and moored, it is safe. There can be no doubt. But that is not what great ships are built for. So we've got just a couple of minutes if one or two people have a question or comment. Got the mic here. Could you do that last quote again? That whole thing? Not the last. last. Oh, in that spirit, I hope you write this on your wall. Yeah. When a great ship is in harbor and moored, it is safe, and there can be no doubt. But that is not what great ships are built for. Does that make sense? What's the title of that? You were made for this. Yeah, come on up. You could just say your name too and just Hi, my name is Anton. So uh, you were mentioning earlier that one of the things that uh, this author was doing every day was kind of a practice of, yeah. uh, what was it? It was like um, compassion. compassion, practice yeah. compassion, some kind of exercise. Uh, will you give an example of how can we do that? Like I, I practice the gratefulness every day. Yeah. You know, it's kind of a, I'm grateful for what happened yesterday. I make a little list of the, oh, I'm so lucky because these, all these things happened to me. And uh, I was wondering if uh, we could do something similar with compassion. How, how would you do that? Yes. Well, there's many types of compassion practice. Um, one form is <coughs> to think of someone that's suffering and to say phrases. May you be free from suffering. I care about your suffering. May you be free from pain. May you be well. And then you can go through people, someone that you uh, know, someone that you maybe don't know, yourself, loved ones, and then you can get to a difficult person. You work up to a difficult person, and then you start to send them compassion. What he was doing, um, that's kind of a classic compassion practice, and then what he was doing was imagining those people who were suffering He was also imagining that they were strong and well and healthy. So you just close your eyes and imagine as you go through the people that you, you know, let's say we did it for the fire victims right now. We can just imagine that they're safe and they're in good homes and they're well. And that creates a buoyancy of the heart and a resiliency of the heart. So the heart isn't overwhelmed by the suffering, but it's also sending goodness and strengthening the heart. And if you want to come up after um, the actual practice of that, I have earmarked, and you could take a picture with your phone if you had it. And it's a short passage on that practice as well as something that's similar to what's called Tonglen, the Tonglen practice, which I was going to do with you tonight, but I went went on too long. I was going to do a mini Tonglen, which is when you actually take in the suffering into your heart, but you transform it into light and send out light. So that's also what he talks about. That's a little bit different, and I can clarify that for you as well. Right. Thank you. Well, it sounds like uh, mm-hmm. when we were children, they were teaching us how to pray. It sounds pretty similar to what you're 
we were saying, like hoping that yeah. people are going to be good people yeah. who are suffering and hoping that they get better and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's prayer. It's, uh, it's prayer, yeah. And there's different traditions, Buddhist lineages, that's a little bit more Tibetan and the classic sort of more Theravadan is for the phrases and so it kind of depends on which teachers, but um, I would say it's all good. <laughs> yeah. Would you like to just do a minute of practice together and then we'll close? Okay, let's do that. We just have a couple minutes. So just get in a comfortable position, just relaxed and comfortable. Take a couple of deep breaths. someone to mind, it can be someone known or unknown, but just bring someone to mind who you know is in, under stress right now. And as you bring them to mind, just imagine that you have a heart of light, bright white light is in your heart. Your heart is radiant and buoyant and light, full of this sort of pure purity. It can be a different color if white doesn't work for you. It can be red or blue or green, but just that the heart is radiant and light. And imagine that you could actually Take in that person's pain and suffering into that heart of light and send them out peace or send them out love or just send them out that light. So you're actually opening to the hardship and welcoming the hardship and sending out what you wish for them, some kind of goodness, ease. of the light, carry the goodness out 
own solidity, your own presence, your own stability. for a moment that collectively maybe we're touching even more beings. This could just keep going out. It's a combination of our well wishes. It's also a combination of our presence, not turning away from the suffering, but being willing to sit, to stand with it and have an open heart of light. have happiness and the causes of happiness. May all be free from sorrow and the causes of sorrow. May all know the sacred happiness that is sorrowless and live in equanimity without too much attachment or too much aversion, knowing the equality of all that lives. Thank you for coming tonight. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.